Would you like to follow along with the message from the Gospel of Mark today? There's an outline printed in the bulletin. Uh, It's on the opposite side of the information about the Lord's Supper today. Well, we are very much in the Christmas season now. As you can see from around here and probably in your homes or going anywhere, you are surrounded by the Christmas season. And as adults, having been through the Christmas season many times... When we are given a present on Christmas, we often have expectations. Perhaps we're actually a professional at guessing what is inside the wrapped gift. You know, we can look at it, feel it, give it a little shake, and think about some things we might have asked for and go, oh yeah, I know what this is going to be. And we open it and we're right. Our expectations were met and we have this sense of, yeah, I'm really good at this stuff. But sometimes what we expect inside the gift is not what's in the gift. And our expectations are not met. Sometimes we're surprised and excited, like, wow, I wasn't expecting this to be in there. And other times, well, we're surprised the other way and confused and frustrated, like, really? What is this? And why was I given this? See, we have expectations about gifts we are given. Well, the disciples in the same way had expectations about this gift that God had given the world, Jesus Christ, his son. Who were they expecting Jesus to be? They saw the outside of the box, the wrapping of this normal-looking guy who was a Jewish rabbi back in the first century A.D., but who was he? What were they expecting this guy to be like? And so we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark, and we have hit the focus, the turning point of the whole Gospel of Mark. It is at this point where Jesus is walking on the road with his disciples, and he just finally says, so who do you think I am? And they have to give an answer. That for possibly years they have been going with him, seeing his ministry, and he's saying, who do you expect me to be? It's a question for us as well. Who is Jesus? Who do we expect Jesus to be? So we're going to look at Mark chapter 8 and getting just a little bit into chapter 9 today. So if you'd like to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, I'll be reading beginning in verse 22 of chapter 8 through verse 1 of chapter 9. As we look at this turning point in the Gospel of Mark. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you Say that I am. Peter answered him, You are the Christ. 
and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan! For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? And forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you speak to us clearly and plainly. You do not leave us flailing in the wind trying to find out truth, wondering what is true, but you speak. And you have spoken to us, and in the greatest way possible, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to be one of us. To show us who you are, what you are like, why we need you. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see you, ears to hear you, and hearts that are open to the words you speak today. Spirit, be with us and change us that we might love you more. Sensing our need of Jesus Christ, answering the question, who is Jesus? Amen. Well, the one thing the disciples struggled with was, who is this Messiah? Who is this Jesus guy? In some ways, they had the right answer, but it was a yes, but. Yes, you have the right answer, but you don't have it all right. You see, Jesus was the suffering Messiah who called his disciples to share in his victory by also suffering losing our lives and following him. So we're going to look at our expectations and the disciples' expectations and then look at how Jesus says, no, here's what I really am. So on the road to Caesarea Philippi, an area in the region back then, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? He wants to know how people understand him. He's done all of these miracles. He has taught and he's like, so... So what's the vibe? Like, what are people thinking about me? And he doesn't really want to know. He wants to know what they are thinking. He wants to know what people expect of him. And it's a fair question, not only for people back then, but for us today. Who do we expect Jesus to be? Who do we say that he is? Now, I would imagine that almost everyone in this room has heard about Jesus at some point before today. 
I think that's probably the case. And so we have some understanding, basic maybe, or more than basic maybe, of who Jesus is. We all have expectations of who this Jesus guy is that we talk about in church, that the Bible speaks of. We all believe something about him, even if we don't necessarily believe in him. Perhaps we expect Jesus to be a kind of genie who grants our wishes for a better life, things that we would like to make our lives better, and he watches over us. We use a magical prayer in his name in order to receive from him benefits, good things, and he's nice enough to provide them. Or maybe we expect Jesus to be a good teacher so that we can learn from him what it means to be wise, what it means to be loving, what it means to be kind. Or perhaps we want Jesus to be a helper. We want someone who will fix our hurts and fix the problems in our lives. That when we or someone we love is sick or sad, we turn to Jesus for help. Or maybe we believe Jesus is just a meddler. And he meddles in our business and he tries to stick his nose in places we don't necessarily want him to stick his nose. And we think Jesus is going to tell us no all the time and we try to keep him at arm's distance. See, those are all possible expectations that we can have of Jesus. But the one that Mark is highlighting in his gospel is what Peter says. The disciple tells Jesus what he thinks, that you are the Christ. Now, Christ was the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. The Messiah was the promised king. So Christ is not the last name of Jesus. Christ was a title, like king or president. He is Christ Jesus. So Peter says that, I believe you, Jesus, are the promised Messiah, the Christ. So what did Peter mean when he said, you are the Messiah? What kind of Messiah was he expecting? Well, they looked forward to someone who would restore the fortunes of Israel. Israel had gone from the glory of King David and King Solomon and fallen. They fractured into two separate countries, and they warred against one another, and they had fallen off completely. And they became a subject of the Roman Empire. And so they longed for a Messiah, a godly man who would come and overthrow the Roman rule and reestablish Israel as a powerful, godly nation. They expected the Messiah to be a reforming warrior king. But Peter's expectation, like many of our expectations, was not entirely accurate. Yes, Jesus was the Christ, but was that the kind of Christ he was going to be? He only saw part of the truth. And so we see that story from the beginning of the passage about Jesus healing the blind man. And yeah, we could spend some time talking about why would Jesus spit in anyone's eyes, but we're going to move on from that. We see what is most important in that passage is that it was a partial healing to start. Jesus healed the man and the man said, yeah, I can see and I know that's a person, but it looks more like a tree that's walking. He could see and tell what he was looking at, but not clearly. He couldn't see the details. Only after Jesus clarified everything, giving him better and complete sight, was he able to see clearly. Now, many of you wear glasses, and you know the feeling of partial blindness. 
that without your glasses, there's, there's problems. Things are blurry. You can kind of make things out, but your vision isn't good. Well, Peter had this kind of partial blindness, this your glasses are off expectation of Jesus. And he needed to get the Jesus glasses back on to see clearly who Jesus was. See, Jesus knew what kind of Messiah they were expecting. This warrior king, this reformer, this revolutionary. And that was the blurry vision. He needed to clarify. He needed to put everything in high definition, in ultra high definition, whatever that is. I don't, I don't know. So he came and he said, I am not a victorious conquering Messiah. I am not coming to lead a political and religious revolution Jesus was coming to be a suffering Messiah who would be rejected by all the powers of the day before he was executed. And then three days later, he would rise again. Now, to many of us, we're sitting here going, yeah, that's that's the story. But we've heard it before. They hadn't heard it before. And they are freaking out. What are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus. The disciples thought this was insanity. Peter takes Jesus aside and is like, okay, man, no, this is not how this is going to work. It goes against their expectations completely. It devastates them. What do you mean you're going to die and willingly die? How is that going to work? How is that going to mean that you are the Messiah? See, they had expectations like we do. In our New Testament reading from 1 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about how the Jews want signs, how they expect a certain thing, and how Greeks and Gentiles, non-Jews, expect certain things out of a Savior. And what Paul says is Jesus takes both those expectations and shatters them and throws them out the window because his way sounds ridiculous. That God's plan goes against all natural expectations. But to be be on the opposite side of God's plan is not a good place to be. See, after Peter pulls Jesus aside, Jesus turns and sees the look of confusion, frustration, probably sadness on the face of his disciples. And he strongly rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Your mind is not set on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, Peter is not really the devil. But Jesus is pointing out that opposing God's plan is the work of Satan, the great adversary of God. You see, Peter was letting his expectations of how God should work get in the way of following Jesus, of trusting God's plan. He was, as Jesus said, setting his mind on his things, the things of man, his own expectations, and not the things of God. This is an error that pops up later in Peter's life. On the night Jesus was arrested, Peter was the one guy, silly Peter, who decided to pull out his sword and say, I don't care if Jesus isn't fighting, and he draws his sword and cuts a guy's ear off. To the very end, Peter did not want to believe that this is the way it had to go. He wanted this to be a revolution, a victory over the powers of the day. You see, Peter had blind spots. And like us, without our glasses on, he was in danger. See, without our glasses on, we may trip over something. You know, We may put shampoo on our face and shaving cream in our hair. I don't know what we would do 
I don't wear glasses, so I'm assuming you guys know what this is like. But he had problems. He had blind spots, partial blindness that caused him to not follow God correctly. And so in the rest of the passage, Jesus speaks to both his disciples and to the larger crowd to correct this biggest blind spot that we have. How our expectations do not match what God has sent as the Messiah. Who Jesus is does not match what we were expecting. So beginning in verse 31, Jesus is trying to do that second healing with the blind man to cleanse their vision, to give them clear sight and see who he would be. And so he very clearly explains his fate to the disciples. He did not use parables. He did not speak symbolically. He tells them in the clearest way possible that he will be rejected by all of the religious leaders. He will be killed, and then he will rise again. It says there in the Bible, he said this plainly. They get all the answers right there. This is what's going to happen. But he doesn't tell them just what will happen. He says this is what must happen which gives us a hint of why this is the way. Jesus is saying, don't try to change it. This is the only way the Messiah will come. They were expecting a Messiah to come restore Israel. That prophecies spoke of this great king who would come and save God's people, but there were also prophecies of a suffering Messiah. Our Old Testament reading from Isaiah speaks of this figure who is to come who will suffer for his people, taking on himself their sins, bearing their sins, their iniquities, their punishment. See, it speaks of someone who will come in a different way than a conquering warrior. The disciples and many other Jews thought what they needed most was a political revolutionary to come in and overthrow everything and set all things right. But they were blind to the fact that there was a deeper need a deeper spiritual need. That the biggest issue the Messiah needed to fix was their sin. And that's why Jesus had to suffer and die. That he would be their sacrifice, their substitute, taking the wrath they deserved on himself. And so after plainly explaining this to his disciples, Jesus gets the whole crowd together and starts applying this message. If this is the kind of Messiah I am, then what does that mean for my followers? See, being a disciple of a political messiah doesn't sound like a bad gig. If you come and you start a revolution and you you win, you get a sweet, cushy government job with the new ruler who's your buddy, and you get the spoils of victory, and you get acclaim, and songs might be written about you because you were the number two guy when the revolution happened. But what would it mean to be a disciple of a Messiah that suffers? Of a Messiah who came to die, not to lead a revolution? Well, the marketing pitch is a little rough. I'm not sure how many people would have signed up right away. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We hear Jesus talk about the cross and we associate that with songs and feelings of victory. It has positive associations. That's why there's a big one hanging right behind me. 
The cross is a sign of victory to us. To the original readers of Mark's gospel 20 years after Jesus, they also would have seen the cross as a sign of victory. But the crowd on that day, again, this made no sense to them. The cross had no positive associations. It was the worst punishment anyone could receive. You would have to walk through the city carrying the cross beam on your back while you were mocked and ridiculed and beaten and spit on as you eventually made it to your place of execution. And then when that was mercifully over, you got to die in one of the most painful ways possible. And Jesus says that if anyone wants to follow him, That's what they should expect. Not applause, not medals of valor, not rewards or the spoils of victory. You must consider your life forfeit, lost, no longer belonging to you, essentially dead. This is what he continues to say very plainly. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? See, Jesus is speaking directly to those people who had expectations of a political victorious Messiah. They expected victory to come in battle, to come in winning right here, right now. So why would they expect their life to be any different? They would want a victorious life, and yet Jesus is saying it is not a victorious life. And this is our blind spot and the disciples' blind spot. We all want the benefit of salvation and victory without the cost. We want to be his right-hand man, forgetting that his right hand was nailed to the cross. We want to follow Jesus, but only like we follow the horse that is pulling our carriage. We're still in control. He does all the work, and we get to enjoy. See, think of how Jesus shatters any expectation we have of him. If we see him as a genie, we want him to make our life better. If we see him as a teacher, we want him to tell us how to live a better life. If we see him... As a helper, we want him to make our life easier and not as painful. And if we see him as a meddler, we just want him to let us enjoy our life. Our expectations of a Messiah, of Jesus, focus on ourselves. Focus on this life. And Jesus is trying, like with the blind man, to give us clear sight for what he came to do. He's saying things like, your life now is the problem. That you are far from God, that you need a fundamental life change, not just an adjustment. You need a savior, not a new president or king. And the only way Jesus can help us is if we see our current life as lost. That we must lose that life in order to save our soul. Now this doesn't mean we literally crucify ourselves or drink some cult Kool-Aid. It means that we put our lives in the hands of Jesus, trusting in the good news. Knowing that Jesus is the Messiah, we trust that maybe he knows best how to be the Messiah. And though it seems completely counterintuitive that victory comes through suffering and death, 
That's what he says. That is how victory is possible. We trust that his death on the cross and his resurrection is good news for us. Better news than a political revolution because it has eternal ramifications on our soul, on our life. And so we're willing to throw away any earthly desires to have Jesus save us from that biggest problem, our sin. Our sin that separates us from God. And so that's the Messiah Jesus is. The suffering Messiah. But then we ask, what was read during the Advent reading, what about this king? Is there, were they completely wrong that a king would come and save God's people? What about the prophecies that speak of a descendant of David who will rule forever with righteousness? Are those expectations wrong? Is Jesus not that king? Well, yes, he is that king. And yes, he will fulfill those promises. And yes, he will bring that kingdom. And he already has. And yet he will bring it. You see, Advent is the perfect time to hold in tension this idea that the kingdom is here, and yet we wait for the kingdom to come. It is both at the same time. I'm going to get you. You see, we recognize that Jesus came to earth as a child. And in his ministry, he says the kingdom of God is here now. That Jesus began the kingdom of God when he ministered on earth. And we saw glimpses of it, like the blind receiving sight, the deaf hearing, and people being healed of their diseases. This is what Jesus means in chapter 9, verse 1, when he says that some of the people listening to him that day will see the kingdom of God in power before they die. It's like, guys, the kingdom is here. Do you not see the kingdom? But during this Advent season, we also wait for the fullness of the kingdom to come when Jesus returns. We long for the second coming of Jesus when he will not come as a helpless baby to suffer, but when he will come as a warrior king to judge the earth in righteousness. He will come to set all things right, to make all things new, getting rid of all evil and darkness and sadness and sickness and suffering and death. This is what Jesus means in verse 38 of chapter 8 when he says there will be a time when the Son of Man comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The kingdom will come in all its fullness. And so we're in this in-between time. It's already here, but not yet fully here. And during this time, we spread the good news about Jesus So that others know about this kingdom they can be a part of. This kingdom that is coming and is come. We love one another proclaiming the gospel. So that in the here and now we might see glimpses of the kingdom of God. Of people growing in holiness. Of calling on the name of the Lord. Of people receiving the glory of salvation. But there's also pain. And there is still suffering for the life of the Christian. And so we long for Jesus to come again. We long for him to come again and set all things right. When those who follow him will no longer suffer. Will no longer take up the cross. But will be victorious. Victorious in the victory that he has won for us through his death and resurrection. And in the meantime, we take up our cross. 
trusting our life, our soul to him, and we follow him. Praying for the coming of our king, praying that he would come soon, praying, come Lord Jesus, come soon. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you will come soon. Even today, Lord, come and set all things right. We are surrounded by a world of brokenness, of suffering, and death. We are surrounded by people who profane your name, people who are wicked and evil towards one another. We are surrounded by suffering, loneliness, and struggles. It seems like the kingdom is not here, God, and yet you reign over all. And so, God, we pray that you would rule now over this earth as your kingdom. Rule in our hearts. Rule in this church like your kingdom. That we may see the glimpses of the glory of the kingdom of God as we wait. As we wait for you to come again, wiping away every tear, curing all diseases, and so that there is never a moment where we worry about suffering or death again. Lord Jesus, come soon. Amen.